welcome to Greater Than Code, episode 94. This is John Sowers introducing Janelle Klein. Thank you, John. And I would like to introduce my great friend, Sam Livingston Gray. Hello, hello. And I'm here to introduce our guest today, April Wenzel. April is the founder of Compassionate Coding, a socially conscious business that's bringing emotional intelligence and ethics to the tech industry. She spent the last decade in software engineering and technical leadership roles at various startups in Silicon Valley. She also teaches coding and mentors technologists around the world. Away from the keyboard, she enjoys picking fruit for the food bank, running ultra marathons and baking tasty vegan treats. Welcome to the show, April. Hello. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. I inserted the word tasty in front of vegan treats. I, I hope that's correct. I think I'm going to add that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. I always like it when that works out. All right, April. Well, glad to have you on the show. And we always like to kick off with the first question, which is, what is your superpower and how did you acquire it? <laughs> I love this question. So uh, I guess I would say my superpower is the ability to synthesize seemingly unrelated concepts to create something new, which is what I did with my company and uh, what I do in general. That's fascinating. I love doing the same thing. Um, how do you think you got to that ability? A lot of practice. <laughs> so I guess I've always had diverse interests. So in school, I didn't have one subject that I kind of loved. I loved all of them. And so I think just being interested in as many things as possible uh, has helped me see the connections among these things. So you mentioned bringing together a lot of disparate things. What are some of the most disparate things that you're bringing together currently? Uh, well, I think in the name of my company are two of them, uh, compassion and code. So, you know, I think coding as a, as a field and uh, just the culture doesn't have the reputation necessarily for being compassionate. Um, it seems like what do these two things have to do with each other? Yet, I think that there is a way to bring compassion into coding, uh, which is like why I combine those two. So I got a question for you. What do you think causes that tension between code and compassion? Why don't we see more cultures of compassion? Why is that not the norm, do you think? I think it's because of the nature of our tools themselves. And by that, I mean physically the actual machines. So machines themselves don't have compassion, uh, clearly. And they are all about being efficient and moving as quickly as possible and without taking into account any feelings because machines don't have feelings. So if we're spending a lot of time using these cold devices, it's likely that we start to acquire some of the properties of the actual tools we're using. So we start to view each other like machines. We start to view ourselves like machines that we want to uh, be operating at optimum efficiency. Uh, and so I think that's that's one of the biggest parts of the uh, the issue there. That's interesting because immediately my brain thinks of counterexamples like, you know, Apple is this has this famously long history of trying to make computing friendly. And of course, the Ruby programming language was designed with developer happiness in mind. But I think really those are the exceptions that more prove the rule. I think feel like I'm not as in touch with the mainstream of computer usage because, you know, I use a Mac and I write Ruby all the time. So I'm sort of insulated from that cold, harsh world of using Windows for boring business shit. <laughs> What's interesting to me, you you mention app, Apple and Ruby. And I think of both of these as, you know, companies or, or tribes, if you will, that were born out of opposition to something, you know, they, they, they hold themselves in tension to the status quo. 
Yeah, I think that that's a really good point. And then I also think that there are sort of shades here. There are levels. I mean, I use Apple products, yes, but I think it's worth acknowledging that like ubiquitous nature of the, um, you know, the iPhone is in a lot of ways isolating people. So people are, you know, you watch people around the world being buried in their phones instead of interacting in person. So while Apple may have some values about people, and if also if you look at Steve Jobs, how did he treat people? Not very compassionately. Yeah, very true. So I think that, you know, there are ideals that these companies and communities have and there's reality. And like even within the Ruby community, you know, uh, Ruby is one of the languages I've used most professionally and I've really enjoyed it. I've enjoyed the community. But within any community, there's going to be the elements that are not the most compassionate. You know, there's um, I forget what it was called. It was like Ruby Wars or something where it was all about people. Ruby. Um, Ruby drama. Ruby drama. Yeah. It was like this website about, you know, conflict happening on the on uh, in, within the Ruby community. And none of those conversations were very compassionate, I have to say. So, you know, I think that uh, it's a complicated issue and it's, you know, we can't really simplify it by saying, oh, well, this one, the, you know, the, this company or this, you know, group, like they do care about humans because uh, overall, we still really aren't caring enough about humans across the board. Yeah, that's a fair point. It's more like there's a continuum and some of those are a little further over, but not as far as we'd like them to be. Yeah. And people are burning out, you know, in all communities and in all companies. So <laughs> there's still work to be done. So talk to me a little bit. I mean, you, you just drew a connection between compassion and burnout. And it, it seems pretty obvious to me, but I'm thinking you probably have some interesting thoughts on that. That's something you talk about a bit. So you want to dive into that? Sure. You know, really at the heart of it, burnout is caused when we're not taking care of ourselves in some way. And so I think that compassion is also includes self-compassion. And I would say that actually the most effective kind of compassion starts with self-compassion, which is just that you care about your own suffering and are looking to alleviate that suffering. And so I think, again, in our interest in being as efficient as possible, sometimes we sacrifice taking care of ourselves and paying attention to the signs of our own um, bodies in terms of how we're feeling. And so that can lead to burnout. And so I think, too, if you create a culture like that within a company where we care more about, you know, short term results rather than long term sustainability, that's what leads people to burn out. So I think both from the self-compassion angle and from uh, the culture on the team, the solution to burnout is having more compassion for yourself and for others. So I hear the words, you know, have compassion for yourself and have compassion for others a lot. It's it's pretty at least in the circles I run, pretty common advice. But I also feel like there's a gap between hearing that advice and actually knowing what to do, what those next steps are that get you to actually to that point where you are taking care of yourself, you are taking care of your team. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, uh, I think you're right. And so I think that actually when people talk about compassion but then don't know how to practice it, that, that can lead to some disillusionment because it just seems like something you might see on a poster on a wall, but that doesn't really mean anything significant. And so I think it's good to focus on the, the practical uh, application of compassion. So compassion really, and we didn't really talk about the definition, but for me, I see compassion as a desire to alleviate suffering. So it's noticing suffering in other people and then doing something to alleviate that suffering. And so in a, for self-compassion, what that means is checking in with yourself on a regular basis. So, for example, in my life, I do regular personal retrospectives. They're kind of like agile retrospectives for teams, but I do them for myself. And I think back on the week and I think about the ups and downs and emotionally and, you know, in terms of 
fulfillment, how I felt, and most importantly, how I'm living according to my values. So I've taken a lot of time to think about what I care about, what my values are. And so I can have these weekly, uh, I set aside a time uh, every week where I look back and think, did my actions correspond with my values or am I living in a way that's out of touch with those values and how do I close that gap? So for the self, just regular reflection is useful. For finding compassion for other people, it really requires slowing down a bit. And by that, which is something that, you know, technologists never want to hear, but it really does require slowing down, looking around at your team and your community and just noticing how are people behaving? How are, how are their, what are their facial expressions? What are uh, their actions? Have they had a drop in productivity? Because rather than assuming that that's because they're lazy, you might think maybe there's something going on at home. Maybe they are suffering in some way. And so I think it's really just a big part of it is just noticing what's going on. And again, you can do that through regular reflection. Yeah, that's great. In, in my emotional API talk, I ta- I put up the idea of doing like an emotional retro at the end of the week where you can pick out certain feelings that you've noticed during the week that, and, and you can either do the simple task of just noticing them, or you can even do some more work to dive into what might the causes might be. But I think one of the things that really jumped out from me about what you said was living according to your values um, and you know how closely aligned you are or your actions were during the week to those values. That could be a really interesting source of certain types of emotions that you're experiencing. So if like you're having a lot of dissatisfaction, it may not be with the world around you. It may be with your actions in relation to the way you prefer to be acting. That's a really interesting bit of feedback that I'll be thinking about. Yeah, I love that idea of uh, the emotional retrospective. <laughs> That's really cool. My first Agile retrospective was in an XP class that I took, and they got they got Diana Larson in to do the the retro. So I started out uh, really well, but she one of the things that she started with was uh, having us go through and put up on a timeline, put up just uh, post its with how we felt at certain points. And then those were used as jumping off points to be like, well, what happened to cause that feeling? Like what was going on in the code? What was going on in the team? Uh, And that was a really useful tool, but I don't think I'd made the leap to considering emotions as their own sort of first class subjects worth discussing on their own. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I think that was a good point about the connection between values and emotions, because Pretty much any time we're feeling a distressing emotion, it's tied to one of our values. And it's either uh, something someone else is doing or that we're doing where there's a disconnect between the world as it is, whether that's our internal world or external, and then our values. Like, for example, if we value uh, having our work recognized and acknowledged and praised and just feeling that that's how we get respect in the workplace, and then we go for a long time without anyone noticing or complimenting what we're doing or anything like that, we may feel really bad on the inside and it's because of that disconnect between our values and then what's happening. So what I want to do is give you some kind of crisp vocabulary of sort of the metaphors and shapes. I see you kind of describing in your teacher mentorship sort of style, the way that, you know, you see the team and want to lift the team. And so the, the way I think of a team is as a circle of peers And I see all the individuals as diamonds that all have their own unique, special potential. And that your role on that team is as a catalyst, as a mentor, 
to be able to see the diamonds within these people, to see when they're struggling, to see when the team is struggling because of all the stuff that gets in the way and be compassionate and figure out how to help those people to be everything they can be. And so I'm wondering if you look through the lens of like thinking about feedback loops, thinking about spirals, thinking about the patterns that you see on the team that affect people's sort of emotional state where they shift up and down, where they sink into kind of survival mode or shift into a mode of compassion and what kind of factors and things you see when you look around at the teams you've been mentoring. So my question is, what feedback loops do you see uh, where people spin up and people spin down? And what kind of factors do you think lead to feedback loops of things getting better or, or worse? That's an interesting question. I really like the metaphor of the diamonds and everything. That, that's, that's beautiful there. I also like that you hit on this point of survival mode because I think that that's a big piece of it. When people are just struggling to get by, they don't feel like they have the space to slow down and to notice what's going on around them. So how am I supposed to care if you're having a bad day if I can't even keep my head above water, right? And so I think one of the biggest things that uh, helps teams is this idea of psychological safety where people feel comfortable making mistakes. They feel comfortable trying new things. And so I think that that comes from how we treat people when they do make mistakes or when we do see uh, some sort of failure on the team, that we have a sense of shared ownership and that like blame and shame are not any part of how we treat each other. On the other hand, things that cause a team to quickly sort of deteriorate is when we do focus on blame and when we do focus on competition. So if people on the team are forced to compete to show that they're smarter than the other person, the other people on their team, if they're forced to show that they're the better rock star programmer, that's going to hurt the team dynamic because it's not even in my interest to help you if I'm trying to be better than you. So that is not like sort of the negative feedback loop sort of way, because then you're going to burn out trying to prove yourself. And you're also going to make everyone around you feel bad because you're trying to show off all the time. And so uh, I think that's how you can get on, on the negative side. And to sort of spiral out of that, it does take the team slowing down and thinking, oh, okay, so this is why we started to see uh, bad behavior here or like negative behavior here is because what we value on the team is individual performance over sort of team collaboration. And that goes back to the your, your talk about um, values matching activities. Like if you have values for the team, you can analyze the team behavior in relation to those values and get the same sort of feedback about how things are going. I'm actually in the process right now of working with my team to define what our values are. So that we can do that, that, and also we can use those when we're hiring so we can look for people that share those values. So you mentioned this example of a negative feedback loop where we value individual performance over team collaboration and this kind of competitive spirit that ultimately drags down the team. So once you've kind of made that shift where you step back and you're, and, you know, look at these factors, what kind of things do you see turn into positive feedback loops where, you know, if Jess was here, she'd be like, generativity. <laughs> but like, there's also these, you know, different factors that feed those positive feedback loops that are also kind of have that similar reinforcing effects. I'm curious what types of things you've seen on that side. Yeah. So I think, you know, 
uh, like I was talking about creating the psychological safety, that's sort of one of the positive ones. So I think, you know, when people, when their focus instead of on competition is actually on mentoring, I think that's where you get a lot of compounding effect in terms of effectiveness on the team, because when people are inspired to help each other, lift each other up, to help each other grow, then that's going to help them feel more like a sense of belonging on the team. And then it's also going to help improve everybody's skills because teaching helps you learn things better. So mentoring, I think, is a great way uh, to, you know, that's valued on a team. And sadly, it's not something that has often been valued on software teams historically because it's been, I'm going to code, you know, in, with, in my little zone alone in a basement and you're going to code over here in this other basement and we're not going to talk and then we're just going to try to mash our code together later. And, you know, I mean, things like pair programming clearly are like one way that movement, but again, that was a movement against <laughs> what was currently happening. And a lot of teams still aren't doing that. Um, but yeah, I think any sort of uh, mentorship, shared ownership, those are kind of the positive things you can put in place that make everyone want to help each other and, you know, be compassionate to alleviate suffering for the whole team and move things in a more positive direction. I keep coming back to this idea of values. And one of the things that I've seen over and over again is that a team will meet and they'll they'll try to have this conversation about what their values are and the practices that they maybe want to change. And they'll get good buy-in on the team and then they'll take that to the person who's more or less managing them and say, well, we want to do this, this, and this. And the manager says, that sounds great. I'd love to, to do that. And then when you actually get into trying to change those things, you run headlong into all of the organizational pressures that have kept you from doing them so far. And even though on paper, everybody says, oh, yes, these are our values, when it comes down to it, there are all these other behaviors that are what's actually rewarded. And I see that a lot with, you know, specific business behaviors and uh, technical practices. But I'm curious how this manifests in changing the social makeup of the team. Yeah, one thing that comes to mind is that we often talk about management and things and processes and the business processes in place, but it's important to remember that it's, it's humans all the way down. So yes, there are people that have some more power in the organization and there are sort of systems at play here, but there's also, it's all humans. So if you're trying to change something, you can do that one mind at a time, regardless. Again, if you're in a big company uh, and there's a lot of bureaucracy and all of that, it's going to be more of a struggle, of course. So I avoid large companies, but, you know, more power to people who <laughs> uh, are okay with them. But you're still, there's, it's just a series of conversations that need to happen, right? I mean, this is how you get any sort of change. This is how you, you know, convince them, convince the company that we're going to have a DevOps uh, culture now, or, you know, we're going to use this new framework. I mean, every sort of change is just a series of conversations with individuals. Uh, I do think that it's often the case that there are a set of values on a paper, on a poster, and that nobody's living according to them. And again, that is for management to, uh, you know, management, but it also is up to the individuals. So I, I don't like to think of um, managers as kind of the only leaders on the team. I like to see everyone as a leader uh, because I think that we're all leading our own lives, if nothing else, but we also can lead projects, but also initiatives. And so I like to empower everyone to be a leader. And so what that means is you're always allowed to live by your own values in the choices you make. So ultimately, the power to make choices according to your values is in your hands, uh, no matter where you are, no matter what circumstances you're in. Uh, because, you know, we always are able to control how we respond to external stimuli. So in a situation where you find that values that are rewarded at the company are different from what they say claim to be, 
I mean, I say talk about that. Bring that up to whoever you need to. At every company I was uh, an employee at, I was always very outspoken about when I saw this disconnect. Uh, it turns out that coming in as a third party, uh, it's a lot easier to be vocal without um, having to worry about the politics of the company. Uh, but I think that it's incredibly valuable if you're the person who says, hey, the emperor's not wearing any clothes. Uh, there's something off here and we need to talk about it. I think that can be very valuable. Yeah, I think what I was specifically asking, though, was like, are there ways that this plays out with conversations, especially around like psychological safety or changing the values of a team from rewarding individual competition to promoting group, you know, productivity? Um, are there ways that that plays out that are different than introducing technical practices? Or is it really all pretty much the same approach? Like, are there specific challenges that you have in getting over social taboos? Actually, I mean, I think that, of course, anytime you're dealing with human beings and you're talking about their daily behavior, of course, there's potential to, I mean, people aren't always willing to discuss that. And I think one of the biggest issues is that teams don't always, companies don't always recognize the importance of these issues. So if you're trying to say, we need to use this framework because it's more efficient and we can get this, this, this done, it's, it's a lot easier to make a very kind of cut and dry argument for using a new tool. It's sometimes harder to explain why it matters that uh, we treat each other well on a team, which is why I think right. it's been so hard for a lot of communities, you know, to adopt these practices too. I mean, there was an article that came out about open source project, a Linux open source project, and the title was some, the headline was something like, uh, programmers are having a huge debate over whether they should be required to treat each other respectfully. And it's like, I mean, of course, yeah, that's, uh, that it's true. Like, sh should we have to treat each other? Well, I don't know. But, um, but again, like, so, so I guess you are going to face opposition when you're trying to change people's uh, pers interpersonal behavior, because I think people it more closely tied to egos than frameworks and tools and whatnot. Uh, not that the ego doesn't come into play there, too, but I think it comes into play more so when you're talking about people's daily interactions. So, so do you find compassion to be a tough sell? Because, I mean, it, it, it's, it's like you, you give these rebuttals. To, to the argument of compassion that are kind of ridiculous sounding. So I'm just kind of, I'm kind of curious. I mean, just being a, an evangelist for kindness, which seems like so foundational in terms of principle. It seems like it should be easy, but I, I get the feeling that it's not. Well, it's true. There's, there is a lot of opposition, but um, I think it all comes back to the fact that companies technology, but just business in general is about, we often talk about alleviating pain points. And that's ultimately what compassion is, is alleviating pain points. And so it really is not wholly different from what we've already been setting out to do. It's just that we haven't been calling it what it is. We haven't been calling it compassion. And in addition, we haven't been considering everyone. We've only been considering some people, like perhaps the people with more power, the people who are more traditionally in powerful positions. And so compassion really says, have the compassion, like ha care about the pain points of everyone involved in the process. So, you know, we're not going to take advantage of programmers and, and push them to the edge and, and let them burn out because we also care about their well-being. And we're not going to take advantage of users' psychological vulnerabilities and addictions and exploit those because we actually care about their well-being and we want to eliminate those, uh, alleviate those pain points as well. So I think that's the difference is it's, compassion's kind of always been there. It's always been kind of what business is supposed to be about is, is helping someone alleviating pain points. But this is just bringing it to the forefront and saying, let's make this the priority. You kind of shifted the conversation a little bit there from 
internal view of like inside my team, inside my company to this external view of a way of being with respect to kind of like this outside world and exploiting others as a means to personal gain. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm wondering if you, if you kind of like zoom out to this outer level of abstraction, same kind of thing with respect to feedback loops, what kind of patterns do you see of negative feedback loops and positive feedback loops in this kind of outer world of how the company treats its customers? Yeah, well, I see this is all connected because I think, you know, ultimately it's all human. So how we treat each other on the team is going to affect how we treat our customers and how we treat the community at large. Um, And so I think it's important to have this conversation uh, at all levels because, you know, it's kind of like how there are nonprofits who are like doing great work out in the world, but then their internal cultures are really toxic and there's full of infighting and things like that. So I think we can't, it's kind of like, you know, we squeeze one part of a balloon and the other part gets big. It's like, we can't just try to shift where we're being compassionate and where we're not. It really has to be uh, across the board, which is also why I think that a lot of the problems we see in tech are just symptoms of this underlying problem, which is not caring about people. But yeah, so I think one of the levels here is caring about your customers. And that comes into play in a number of ways. One of them is actually related to the team because it means listening to UX designers and product people who have often been dismissed by engineers in the past um, and continue to be so. So I think actually paying attention to them. I think having engineers watch people use the product is really useful for building empathy. Uh, if you can, if you have to see somebody struggling with your app and you can see how unhappy they are using it, I think that that can hit home like, oh, wow, this actually matters. Again, having a set of values. So uh, knowing that where you draw the line in terms of taking advantage of customers and in terms of, you know, what you're giving to them and what you're taking from them and making sure that everybody's on the same page about that. I've worked at companies where I didn't like what they were doing to the customers and I didn't like how they were treating them. And it's something that's hard to speak up about. But if you don't, you know, you, it's hard to live with yourself if you don't speak up about it. Um, and so, you know, we've seen this recently with uh, people at Google opposing using um, facial recognition uh, or drones that were going to be used with uh, for defense purposes, for military purposes. Uh, we see more and more engineers like actually paying attention to their ethics and actually bringing that to the workplace. Um, and so I think, again, the, the way to kind of create the positive feedback loop here is to know your values and continually reflect to see if your actions at work are in line with those values. I had an interesting reaction to something you said about how, you know, business is about um, alleviating pain points for others. I, I forget exactly what it was. It was. It's funny. My very first reaction to that was, wait, no, business is about making money because that's all the um, all the rhetoric that we hear about. But of course it is. It's about ideally being in business is providing a service for somebody else that they value enough to pay money for. But for me, the emphasis is always on service, right? I'm in service to the people who are paying me money. I'm in service to my fellow developers and other people on the administrative team who could use some force multipliers. And that service really seems to me to be the most important thing. Yeah, I think that's great. I think um, a sense of service is really motivating. And I think, you know, it's, it's easier to live in line with your values if you come from that place of service, I think. There's also something that happens as organizations change and there's more, you know, greater amount of disconnect between your investors, board of directors and the people like inside the company that are actually running the show. I mean, I've seen companies shift from 
being super innovative and creative and, you know, start with a great culture. And then as they end up growing and, and getting to this tipping point, sometimes as just growing too fast and losing that initial kind of culture that they had, it's almost like when your, your market gets big enough, you can shift to a place of holding your customers in handcuffs. <laughs> I mean, essentially it's like, it's like I've created this, these constraints and so how do I maximize profit given the existing vendor lock-in, right? And that mindset shift of essentially, initially, maybe you started from a place of compassion and then like shifted to this place of objectifying your customers and maximizing your ability to exploit them. I don't know. It's, it's a, it's, we're kind of on the line of like just challenging topics. And so just meta, I'm, I'm wondering where to go with this, that, that creates like productive, but safe conversation, because I think it's really important for people to see compassion on the inside and compassion on the outside and how the choices they make every day. You said something that struck me at the very beginning of this, of I, I've, I've been in this place of kicking back and thinking about what are my core values and how are the decisions I'm making in line with those core values or not? And the way you see the world is in line with that same standard of looking at, this is what you say your values are. How are you acting like that? Are you actually acting in line with your values or not? And you say things that are quite harsh and eye-opening, but oriented toward compassion as a core value of like, this is something we should all believe in because we all end up better that way. I don't know. I, I guess there's supposed to be a question in there somewhere, but. <laughs> well, I did think of, I, when you were talking, I was thinking about how, you know, you were talking about when we get to the point of objectifying our users and whatnot. I think one one misconception is that compassion is at odds with doing good business. And I think that it's just not, it doesn't have to be that way. I think we can continue to solve problems for our customers and keep them happy. And then we will make money doing that, right? Like that's the whole point is that, and that's why, my company is a conscious business and why I love the idea of conscious businesses because they're living by their values, but making money. So it's not about not making money. It's about living with your values and making money. And I think I, I also like that you tied back to the beginning because it's true. It's every day we make choices that are either in line with our values or not. So for me, you know, I went vegan two years ago and part of that was I always said, oh, I love animals. I love animals. Like, and then I was eating them, you know, um, and so it's like, or, or, I mean, I was vegetarian before that, but then I was eating the product of their suffering. Um, and so, you know, for me, it was like, okay, so actually I wasn't living in line with my values. I claim to value life, every life, and I claim to value every animal life. And yet I'm participating in the torture of these animals. Like, I couldn't live with myself doing that anymore. So I made a shift, right? And so I always encourage other people to think about their own values and think, you know, on a, even the harsh truth, even thinking my daily actions, you know, if I don't support, you know, like sweatshops, if I don't want to support them, but then I shop for clothes that are made in sweatshops. I mean, you know, it's like things like that. It's like our actions on a daily basis, uh, you know, or even more relevant to what we were talking about where you're working, what you're doing, you know, um, on, on a daily basis at work, like, is it in line with your values? If you're claiming to value kindness, right? But then you also kind of gossip about somebody behind their back, you know, it's like, you don't want to beat yourself up for that. But you do recognize it and think, huh, 
although normally I'm a kind person, I did kind of slip and I did this thing that wasn't very kind. And then I want to get back to that. So I think that's kind of how I think about it is just not judging yourself and not blaming yourself, but having these really honest conversations with yourself on a regular basis to keep evaluating where your actions are disconnecting from your values. Wow. Such an inspiration listening to you. These aren't things I hear very often. I mean, just the level of conscious business, I mean, in, in yourself, evangelizing something like that is all about congruence and alignment. And it makes sense that you would be someone that is very reflective on being alignment with yourself, right? And whether it's at the organization level or the community level, those same principles seem to very much hold for you. I mean, I do my best and I feel like that's all any of us can do. I at least try to notice when my actions disconnect from my values just so that I can remedy the situation. And I think that's where self-compassion comes into play uh, because nobody's perfect and we're going to slip up and we're going to make mistakes. And I think that if we try to hide from the mistakes, we're just going to keep making them. But if we acknowledge them and forgive ourselves and forgive others if necessary, and then we can learn from them and then just move closer, trying to right ourselves in terms of the path that we want to be on. I think that's the key. Interesting. I've, I've come to a place of not looking at the world as like this dissonance between I'm not perfect and nobody's perfect and how far I am away from that tension and to just instead kind of collapse that into continuous so that I am just an arrow and I'm always experiencing life and learning from those things and making new decisions in the moment. And so my goal has been more congruence and, and being whole within myself, like not having to like shut myself down to feel okay in the world, to not have to like hide behind a mask in order to try and make friends, you know? And so as I've wanted those things myself, wanting to get to a place where I can be myself, my compassion has steered toward wanting to be able to create that for others. Cause I, there's so much tension I think that we carry in trying to wear masks trying to be light, trying to be what everyone else wants us to be, trying to be good enough. And it consumes a lot of energy. And then when you don't have energy anymore, you go into survival mode, right? And you can't even see anyone else anymore because you're just wallowing in your own pain. And I think the people that aren't in pain, you know, if I look at the around me at the people that have the, are in a position to do something, about the people around them that are in pain is the people that aren't in survival mode that can still see that, see that pain and want to alleviate it in others. One of the things I think is really special about this podcast is people like you showing up here is amazing. I mean, just hearing what you have to say has been beautiful. Well, likewise, thank you. Yeah, it's something that brings us back to that that starting with self compassion as as the the start, because you have to have compassion for yourself so that you have so that you can get yourself into that healthy place, so that then you have that energy to notice other people and to pay attention to what they're going through and to give energy to them to help them go through. And then I think that ripples outward from, you know, once you get, you've got the team functioning well and caring for each other and, and practicing their empathy and compassion. And then that can flow into the rest of the company, into the customers and, and out into the world from there. But I think it has to start with you. Absolutely. 
One of the things that I think maybe people, certainly I have uh, sometimes had a lot of trouble with is something that you said, April, about uh, you, you gave the example of thinking that to yourself that like normally I'm a kind person, but then I went and I said something about somebody else that was not very kind. And that struck me as as really neatly capturing this difference between identity and behavior that I think a lot of uh, a lot of people have trouble getting past because when we when somebody confronts us about our behavior we hear it as an attack on our identity and that consumes a lot of mental resources and it gets us really defensive i see a lot on social justice twitter about intent versus impact which is i think a similar similar shift in framing but maybe on a personal level we can start with this is a thing i did not this is who i am that's a really good point because we can't always control how the feedback is going to come in. And so it could come in as you're a horrible person. And that's why I think any feedback I try to filter through my own kind of values and understanding. And I think it's true. We can kind of do these translations where no matter what somebody says, we can look for maybe the, the, the grain of truth in there. So if somebody says we're horrible for something we say, we can think something I said led to pain in that person. And let me think about whether or not you know, like I know what my impact, my intent was, but let me also think about the impact, as you said. And um, no, I think I think that's a really good point. Is that uh, no one action defines us. So uh, you know, I'm I'm all about uh, forgiveness for yourself and for others. And even when you know we've done horrible things, I mean, one thing like by getting really deep into compassion, I've read like through extreme examples, you know, where there's like there's a forgiveness project that's to forg- you know, where people who our uh, family members of people who have been murdered come get to a point where they forgive the murderer, you know, and that's the level I'm talking about here where you can actually, it's possible really to forgive anything if you really, you know, want to, um, not to say that everyone, I'm trying to say everyone needs to, but I'm just saying there is this ability. And so I mentioned that because it means that you're willing to look for the core humanity in everybody. And so you're, I like to assume yes, that people are coming from a positive place and then communicate the impact if necessary. And I think that it's good for us to do that with ourselves too. And to assume that we were doing our, like in the agile retrospective that I love the prime directive. I think that the prime directive is like this great piece of like, of personal development kind of uh, literature that gets overlooked. But the prime directive says that no matter what we discover, we understand, truly believe that everyone was doing the best given the circumstances. I'm paraphrasing, but that's the the gist of it. And I think that that's, I would love if we could all live by the prime directive and assume everyone's doing their best given the circumstances and then communicate from that level. I'm I'm in the process of of building out a um, post-mortem, post-incident review process for my team. Um, and so one of the things I, I keep hammering on basically every time we do one of these is, is the, the, the blameless part of the blameless postmortem. <laughs> um, just because I know that it like it's so common to start looking at, at at a person as being the cause of an issue rather than the the situation being cause of the issue. Um, I know um, Nicholas Means in his talk about the Three Mile Island disaster talks about this a little bit about how you know you can look at sort of one narrative for an event and think, oh, you know, the X person made bad decision Y that led to this problem. But if you can actually get back to like the way they saw the world at the time, what their decision they made was completely rational and, and was the right decision given that um, and and trying to bake that into the process so that we don't ever fall into that trap of, oh, well, you just did the, the X wrong. Um, it's something I'm trying to find 
ever newer ways to emphasize. <laughs> yeah, I, I love that. One thing we talk about in the compassionate coding workshops is just how no matter what behavior somebody uh, exhibits, no matter what action they take, in their head, it made sense at the time. Like for some reason, no matter what, you know, the emotions, the uh, kind of view of the world, whatever it is, it made sense in their head. So empathy really comes from trying to reconstruct that and try to understand what was going on in their head that whatever action they took actually made sense. And, and you have to give the benefit of the doubt there and think they're good. Obviously, since they took the action, they convinced themselves of it. So to be able to figure that out in your head, I think, is the, the key to building empathy and to avoiding blame, like you mentioned. I think it's really interesting. You focus on compassion, but at the same time, all your metaphors are oriented around pain and compassion as alleviating pain points. And to as you're learning about the perspective of somebody else being empathetic to that, understanding how something you said led to pain in another person. And it doesn't matter if that was your intention. That's just sort of like this thing that happened. You know, there was an action that was taken that led to pain. And then compassion then becomes responding to alleviating that pain then. So I'm kind of wondering in the context, going back to software team, what are some of the things that you see as pain that might be invisible to other people? I think a lot of times there's just an underlying frustration that just goes unexpressed. So I think software engineers and their interest in being efficient and their interest in, you know, uh, getting things done, they sometimes resent people on the team or circumstances on the team that they feel are out of their control. Like this could be red tape. This could be a process that they think is useless, like meetings that they don't want to go to. That's a big one. And yet they won't always directly express these things because they haven't been equipped with the skills needed to communicate them in a productive way. So what they usually do is kind of passive aggressively, you know, make some sarcastic joke about how all meetings are useless or this is a waste of their time or they'll roll their eyes or whatnot, or it'll bubble up and then they'll have a tantrum and then, you know, work from home, sign off Slack and just kind of be out for the day, which happens uh, more often than you think among adult software engineers. That That's sort of the, uh, the, the, the pain, that's the suffering that I see. And I think that to alleviate the suffering is to, to really help teams get these communication skills. How do you communicate when you're annoyed with something someone's doing, right? And so, you know, one thing I do is I work with teams to use nonviolent communication. Um, and I think that's really helpful uh, because when people are just sharing how they feel about a situation and like what the impact is on them, it leads to uh, a more productive conversation where you're not making accusations or whatnot. And I think it just takes practice. And it ties back into the psychological safety we're talking about, where people need to feel like they can speak up, where they feel like their opinions are valued. But I think that's really that's really the biggest one, which is why, you know, why I was so inspired to start my company, because, you know, I worked at so many companies and I saw all of this quiet suffering that would only come out in like back kind of channel conversations where people were griping about this or that. And no one was just coming up. And but, you know, in the like public meetings, it was like, oh, everything's great. We're a great team. And we value all these things. And we're so happy. And I'm like, how is this like still going on? Like, how are these adults like basically lying to each other and hiding their true feelings? And so although, you know, compassion's in the name, that's why compassion is not being polite or fake nice or, you know, pretending everything's fine. Compassion usually means having some very difficult, challenging conversations uh, where the truth really comes out, you know. And I think that that is the key to alleviating the, this kind of undercurrent of suffering that runs through a lot of software teams. 
Yeah, I was figuring at some point we'd get to the the distinction between being kind and being nice. Mm-hmm. Which is why I'm concerned that, um, you know, Stack Overflow, they have this be nice rule, you know, and, and l- recently they extended it into a whole code of conduct, which is great. But I think this be nice is still kind of a dangerous concept because it's um, it's kind of, uh, it has connotations of being artificial and fake. And I think that that's not really what we want in the world. We don't want people pretending to be nice. You brought up this view of like public happiness in a company. Of and it, it makes me think of this team I was working with where they were all celebrating and having cake and it was, you know, some big party that they were having and everything was fine, right? Everything's grand. And then you know, I individually took all these people out for drinks and then he heard like the back channel story of everybody bitching about each other and like how explosive like the drama is and yet nobody talks about it at all. And it's amazing how, how much like these masking smiles and stuff that you see at these parties and that basically, yeah, like people are like lying to each other and hiding their feelings, but I, I feel like they're lying to themselves too of telling themselves everything's fine. And that almost becomes its own habit. I'm wondering, you know, with all of the self-focus kind of things, how do you take that first step of being honest with yourself, of getting to that place where you can go, everything's not fine? That's a really good point. I think there's no easy way to do that. (laughs) I think that's one of those, you kind of have to jump in the pool and, you know, and just hope for the best there. I mean, it's like, what I do, and, and maybe, and this seems to be helpful for others too, is just to preface any sort of self-reflection uh, thing with just the concept that no matter, again, like the prime directive, no matter what I discover here, when I actually start looking at the truth, I'm not going to stop loving myself. I'm not going to stop accepting myself. I'm going to accept no matter what I find, I'm going to accept it. And uh, I'm sure that sounds cheesy to some people, but I th- really think it's important. I think it's important to um, say that no matter what you uncover on the dark in the dark side of, of your life and your personality, that you can still accept it and you can still hold it in compassion. And I think if you start with that and, and establish that safety just in yourself, I think that could be really helpful. I've found journaling really helpful because it's a private medium. And so I can put out whatever I want on the page and no one's going to judge me for that. And so I think that that's how I discovered where some of the ways I was being out in the world were not consistent with my values is and but I was pretending everything like everything was fine because you know I was making good money at these tech jobs and I was you know by external measures everything looked fine but I was really suffering on the inside and I could only discover that through journaling and through you know reading a lot too about these concepts and then seeing how they applied to my life and thinking oh yeah I do have these issues and I do you know have these problems and I you know and I see this problem on my team and I see you know, these people suffering on my team, and we really need to talk about this. And I think so. yeah, that's, that's what I think the first step would be establishing that safety. And then the second step is really taking the time to privately reflect. Then from there, you can have these conversations with others about the issues that are relevant to other people too on the team. So how do you start those conversations? Because I, I really love Janelle, I love your question. Um, it really got at something that I was trying to trying to put into words, which is, I'm trying to put myself in the in the shoes of one of our listeners who maybe works on a team that's got some toxic behaviors on it and they've they've had these conversations with themselves and they realize that something needs to change now how do you start that conversation with somebody else because it's really hard to be the first or even the second person talking openly about this on a team that doesn't reward that kind of behavior 
Yeah, that's that's very true. Um, I found that to be the case many times when I would try to bring a light some of these issues. But what I learned was using empathy for the person you're going to approach. So I would start by approaching individuals. I think that so if your team doesn't have a supportive culture and you try to bring this up in a more public medium, like in maybe at an agile retrospective, I think that it could be dangerous just because people's egos will be threatened. And so you're more likely to be seen as a troublemaker, which was my favorite role. Especially if you're from a marginalized community. Sorry for interrupting. It's but I an to... important point, And it's very true. Yes. And so I think that that's probably not the best <laughs> avenue. Um uh, in term in terms of the results that will get you, I mean, you know, more power to you if you want to try. But I think that it's not necessarily going to be the most effective. I think approaching people privately is best because uh, the ego is less defensive there. And so I would look for pe- first talk to people who you think may be sympathetic to this, but then are maybe afraid to speak up. I would approach that just because it will be an easier conversation. And I would just share your concerns. And again, I would advise using sort of n- the nonviolent communication strategies, which is to say. Here's what I'm observing, you know, like in an objective way, in the in the company. Like here's the behavior I'm seeing. Here's how it's making me feel, or how what I'm concerned about. You can, you know, it, if you're not comfortable being kind of touchy feely about it, you can say, I'm concerned that this is, you know, hurting our productivity in this way. You can use concern because less um, touchy feely, I guess. <laughs> and then you can say, here's what you know I'm hoping to see happen. Like what do you think? You know, and starting a conversation. Um, and again, so that's one way is to share, go right in and share your, what you see and how it's concerning to you. Another way is just to ask questions, like, cause that can be easier and less threatening to people. Like, what do you think about this? You know, do you think that, uh, the way this meeting happened, like was, was good? Like, how did this meeting make you feel? What did you think about this meeting or whatever the behavior is to start asking other people how they feel about it? Cause that gives them the space to share openly. And then you can start to compile that and then, you know, approach other people in the company, especially people maybe in roles with more power that can make more changes uh, to, to, to address some of these issues. But yeah, so I think starting somewhere is good. It's, as long as you start somewhere, it's good. And I would say privately is best. And I would also say, and I, I feel the need to mention this, is that some companies are kind of a lost cause in that if it's so toxic, you could stay there the rest of your life trying to fix this culture and just be miserable and burn yourself out. And so I think out of self-care, sometimes you need to know when to walk away. And sometimes that's the right choice. I made that choice a lot. And so I encourage other people to get to a place where you can make that choice. I realize that it's not accessible to everybody given circumstances, but when you can walk away from a toxic situation and find something better, I encourage you to do that because life is too short to fight these battles against toxicity that are impossible to win sometimes. Right. Like the expression goes, you can change your team or you can change your team. (laughs) I like it. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I really like that approach of starting privately because if nothing else, it may help you build a sort of private support network that maybe is outside the normal hierarchy of the team that if you can mutually support one another, then you can conserve your spoons and maybe work on incrementally making changes enough to the point where you can start being public about that, about what you're doing. And that really does help protect people who aren't in a position to leave. Thank you. So again, bringing this back around to an individual who's on a team that either has recognized that something is wrong or maybe even doesn't recognize yet that something is wrong in in what's going on on their team. Um, I wanted to provide a more technical example of where compassion is important. And and I I threw a comment in our side chat uh, earlier about clever code where the word clever was in quotes. And 
this is trying to capture a situation where like somebody has written some code that only they can understand. They were trying to hold everything in their head at once. And that's really obvious in the code because it's got, you know, 50 variables and their states are mutually interdependent and all kinds of wacky stuff is going on. And what I find sometimes I have a hard time getting people to understand is that that code can be harmful to other people on the team if they're not all able to perform and process the information at that same level. We talk about social behaviors and and just for people who may value technical things a little bit more, this might be uh, a way that you can start that conversation with them is to be like, hey, so when I run across this code, it makes me cringe and, and feel anxiety and fear because I feel like I'm just going to mess this thing up. And it really hurts the productivity of anybody else who wants to work around that piece of code because they wind up working around it, not with it and coding defensively and uh, just trying to make the minimal change possible. And over time, it gets worse and worse. Maybe that's a place that you can start the conversation is to be like, well, so how can you, when you're writing a specific piece of code, how can you have compassion for the people who are going to uh, work with this code after you? Maybe that's a a small starting point. Yeah, so it's interesting that um, that you use this word technical and said let's get the discussion more technical because I actually have fairly strong feelings about this and that I think right? everything that we've discussed is technical um, because Absolutely. these are all people like every every like person on a software team is engaged in producing software and so these conversations how people feel on the team is going to come out in the code and so um, you know a lot of times I'll use the example of how you name variables uh, requires empathy because you're naming the variables not for the machine but for your future self and for other people on your team so in this example of code that's written in kind of a convoluted way that's not very easy to understand it doesn't show a lot of empathy for the other people on your team because it shows that or compassion because you're you're, you're causing suffering and you're definitely not alleviating suffering uh, for the people on your team and so I think how you described it as it, uh, approaching it is, is good and that you tell the person what you're observing about the code and then what your concerns are given that and, um, you know, that you would like them to, to move in a different way. And I think it's important here, too, to to acknowledge that, uh, you know, depending on what the team values, that may or may not be well received, because if the team just values you know, velocity or something like that. And this person got the code done really quickly, then they may be rewarded for that. And so they, they might just dismiss you. And so being prepared for that, but that if you're able to share on, like from in using the values that the team has agreed to why what they've done could be harmful or how to do it in a better way, I think that that can be a way to, um, to get people to understand, uh, you know, how if they show compassion how it will actually be more efficient because then when we need to extend this method in the future, why it will be easier because we've, um, you know, we've thought about the, who's going to deal with it in the future and we've built compassionately. So, so I don't always take like dwell on um, kind of proving that compassion can be used uh, in coding because I think it's um, to me, it's all just tied together because we're all again, we're, we're single human beings who are working, like we have our home life and our work life and our coding life and our speaking life and our collaborating, our architecture discussions and all of that. But ultimately, we're just a human being. So we can't kind of tease these apart. And like, this is my coding brain. And this is, you know, if you're in a bad mood, you're going to possibly write bad code, you know, and so, uh, so it's all related. 
Uh, yes, thank you for calling out explicitly the uh, the technical versus soft skills, and I'm using heavy air quotes here, divide, because uh, I also believe it totally doesn't exist, but um, I use that terminology without thinking too hard about it, so thank you. Yeah, whenever I talk about those hairy little bits of code, I, I think our, the team I'm on does a pretty good job of not placing that velocity above everything else, but I even if they did, I would always say, it's the velocity now, but it's not the velocity later because everyone else is going to trip up when they run into that and that everything subsequently is going to slow down. Compassion for our future selves, our future velocity. <laughs> yes. So we're getting to this last part of the show where we wrap up and do reflections about all the great lessons and takeaways. And there's a lot of them. I've been taking notes this whole time of a lot of amazing insights from you, April. It's been really great. So um, I wanted to give each person an opportunity to, to close with their thoughts of their key takeaways. And then we'll do a little bit of synthesis. So I guess for me, there's there's two things that, uh, that I want to come back to. One was just a little phrase, uh, April, where uh, you used this metaphor that I absolutely adored, which is you were talking about how you used, I think you said it's not a balloon where you squeeze one part of it and another part of it gets bigger. And that to me was this wonderful metaphor for capturing like how zero sum thinking kind of works, which is something that I, I bash my head up uh, against a lot is trying to get people to understand, no, that thing that you're talking about is not zero sum. If you could just change the way you looked at it. So thanks. I'm going to try to use that metaphor a little bit more. That was wonderful. The other thing that really stood out for me was just this idea of holding compassion for yourself um, and for other people. I've been going through a DBT curriculum as as part of a, a group. And one of the things that we worked on that I really initially had a lot of trouble with was this idea of radical acceptance. And the way that it was framed in the group was, you know, basically there are reasons for everything that happens. And I initially heard that as, you know, everything happens for a reason, so you should rejoice in your suffering. And I had a really hard time with it because, you know, that's really sort of alien and foreign to me. But really, when I got past that, what I heard in that curriculum was that the thing that you're frustrated about, there was a reason that it happened, even if you don't necessarily know what it was. And holding that in your head can give you the space that you need to go and figure out, well, okay, so what is that reason? What what else might be going on and to, to make space for that curiosity, which may ultimately lead you to understanding, which can then lead to having compassion for somebody who did something that came out badly, but at least you can understand where it was coming from and how you might intervene in the future and, and change that. So I really like that we had this focus on compassion and that gave me a new way of thinking about it. So thank you. I think for me, the, the thing that's sticking out most is is putting the values evaluation into uh, regular reflections, regular retrospectives. Um, I think that's going to be a useful addition to my personal retrospectives because I think it could really tease out some interesting issues. But I also am interested to see how it applies at, at a team level in that you can look at the values that the team is espousing and then how those are or are not being lived up to and as, as using that as a way to get into specific issues that may not be easy to express or easy to identify. So thank you for that. Thank you. 
So I just really appreciated hearing all of your perspectives on this. And I really liked the diamond metaphor there. That was really cool. I also liked how we were able to address kind of the range of places where we need to apply compassion, because I really do think it's so the takeaway for me is really just to remember that you don't just apply compassion in one in an isolation on one thing. It's like you don't just have a social good company, but then everyone's kind of backstabbing internally. And you don't just, you know, treat the software engineers nice, but then ignore the designers and product and quote management. It's like true compassion is unconditional, which means you have it for everyone and everything. I think that that's uh, kind of the biggest point for me. And listening to this, one of the things you also said initially about the art of synthesis is being able to see all these similarities and seemingly disparate things. And I'm guessing a lot of that is because you orient toward these metaphors of around pain, almost like you see this tension that people are holding, quietly suffering, and you see those same dynamics in all these different contexts. So they all kind of start looking the same to you. I find this really interesting because my book I spent five years writing on was essentially on how to quantify pain. And I had all this trouble at first trying to communicate these ideas. And what was interesting is when I was talking to men, what I found is the metaphors that they framed this idea of pain with is like, oh, well, these are like battle scars in our competitive game that we play. And pain is not bad. It's, you know, these are our, these are our, our, our scars. And because of that frame, people couldn't hear me, you know? And what I got out of this is you gave a very explicit definition of what compassion means as well as what pain means when you describe this kind of quiet suffering, when we hold tension with our environment, like there's these things that, you know, annoy us, (laughs) but that we say nothing. And so it comes out as like these passive aggressive sort of behaviors of all meetings suck and, you know, all this stuff because we're holding on to that tension and that your way of relieving that is creating a avenue for expression and that, that, that that's ultimately all it takes is to have a context where we can express ourselves in an environment of psychological safety and what 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 it takes to get there, learning these skills of nonviolent conversation and what you can do as an individual to be able to create those kind of things on your team to relieve that tension. I see a whole lot of quiet suffering going on right now in a lot of contexts. And with all of the things you brought up about how to approach these things, how to affect your team, how to affect your organization, how to affect your community. It's really an opportunity, I think, for all of us to help relieve some of that quiet suffering out there. Yeah, that's beautiful. It actually ties in with an, an idea I've been just started developing recently called, I'm calling it emotional debt, analogous to technical debt. Mm. It's it's unaddressed problems that are floating out there causing extra CPU processing for everyone on the team. I love that. I look forward to hearing more about it. Yes, thank you, April. This was a really, really wonderful show. And I'm I'm so glad that I randomly showed up today so that I could be here for this. <laughs> thank you for having me. This has been great. I love that the show exists, by the way. So <laughs> kudos for that. Uh, I guess we're wrapping up here. And I'll take a moment to remind everyone that this 
show is supported by our Patreon, which is at patreon.com slash greater than code. Pay any amount per month. We'll get you access to our secret Slack group for um, listeners and uh, guests uh, where you can have fascinating conversations like this all the time. So go sign up. <laughs> well, it's not a secret anymore, John. Thanks. <laughs> Seriously, though, it's a wonderful Slack, and uh, if you if you have the extra capacity, it's uh, it's well worth joining. And thank you for listening, even if you don't. 